revealing their sin and their hypocrisy. He's, he's showing not only them, but those that are there uh, uh, in Jerusalem, the hypocrisy of these religious leaders. And last week we looked at a very significant event that kind of took this hatred towards Jesus to a new level. He comes to Jerusalem and he has this triumphal entry. He rides in on a donkey and the significance of that is that the crowds are shouting, Blessed be the man who comes in the name of the Lord. They're declaring him as the Messiah, the King of the Jews. And the religious leaders, they're already upset at Jesus. They already hate the fact that he declares that he's the Messiah. They hate the fact that he shows their sin. But now even worse is the people are declaring him as the Messiah. And so they say to Jesus, ask them to be quiet. Stop them from declaring that you're the Messiah. And definitely Jesus will not do that. And so now the religious leaders are even more upset and have even more reason to hate Jesus. And, and at the end of this chapter 19, we're going to see Jesus do one more thing that's going to kind of take it over the edge. It's going to be something that upsets them even more. He's going to cleanse the temple. He's going to basically kick out the religious leaders out of the temple because of some things that they're doing that are ungodly and unbiblical. Well, the problem that the religious leaders have now is they want to destroy Jesus. They want to kill Jesus. That's where their heart is. But they can't do it yet because the crowd loves him. The crowd's been chanting, you're the Messiah. So before they can destroy Jesus, they have to discredit him. And so after we look at the last four verses here in chapter 19 of what Jesus does in cleansing the temple, we're going to move into chapter 20, which now we're going to have the religious leaders trying to discredit Jesus because they want to destroy him, but first they need to discredit him. And they're going to pose three questions, interrogation questions, designed to catch Jesus in a dilemma. They think they're no-win questions. They think they're catch-22 questions. And so they're posing these questions, hoping that they can now take Jesus and help him lose his popularity among the Jews so that he can be discredited among them. Well, we're going to see that as Jesus responds to their questions, he's not the one discredited. He's not the one to be made foolish. The religious leaders are. He's going to kind of turn the tables on them. But before we look at these interrogation questions from the religious leaders, let's see what Jesus does now, this next thing that he does that really upsets them, starting in chapter 19, verse 45. Uh, it says this. Then he went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in it, saying to them, It is written, My house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests, the scribes, and the leader of the people sought to destroy him, and were unable to do anything, for all the people were very attentive to hear him. So Jesus starts this final portion of his ministry. He enters into Jerusalem on a donkey, declaring himself to be the Messiah. The people are shouting that out. The religious leaders say, stop them from doing it. He says no. The next thing he does is he goes to the temple. But notice as he goes to the temple what he does in the temple. It tells, it tells us that he began to drive out those who bought and sold in it. And he says to them, it is written, my house is a house of prayer, but you have made it into a den of thieves. So Jesus comes into the temple and he starts driving out the religious leaders. And the reason he drives out the religious leaders is he says, you guys have made the temple a den of thieves. 
Well, how is it that the religious leaders have made the temple into a den of thieves? Well, there were two main ways that that was taking place. Two main ways in which the religious leaders were ripping off people who were coming to the temple to sacrifice, coming to the temple to worship God. There were two main ways the religious leaders were taking advantage of that and ripping people off, ultimately making the temple a den of thieves. The first way that the religious leaders ripped people off was by forcing them to buy approved animal sacrifices. You see, as people would come, they would have to bring their animal to sacrifice for themselves and their family for their sins, and they'd bring it to the priest to do that. Well, the priest would examine the animal, and they say, you know what, you got a problem, this animal has a blemish. And for some reason, they could always find a blemish on every animal. But you know what? We have some animals over here that are approved animals. They don't have any blemishes. And you can buy this animal from us, and we'll take your animal in its place. But the animals that they had, obviously, they charged a lot more money in order to get those. And significantly enough, the animal that they took from you that had all these blemishes, all of a sudden, that animal, a little longer in the day, becomes an approved animal that they sell again to other people. And so they were just ripping people off, saying, your animal's not good enough, you need to buy one of ours, we'll take your animal off your hand, and then we'll resell it and make even more money. So that was one way in which the priests were making the temple of God a den of thieves, ripping people off. The other was they were ripping people off by forcing them to use the um, temple currency. You see, every Jewish male had to pay a temple tax every year. That was something that was within the law. But the temple, they said, you know what, we only use the temple shekel. We don't use this pagan Roman currency, we only use the temple currency, but, you know, people like today in America, we use the dollar. If you use something else, then, you know, you can't buy and sell. So, you know, most people had the Roman currency because that was the currency that you bought and sold things. They bring that currency to the temple and they say, oh, we can't take that currency. You need to exchange your Roman currency for the temple shekel. And they would have a horrible exchange rate and once again, rip people up. I lived in Europe for 13 years, and I was always aware of the exchange rate because I want to know how much will my dollar buy in pounds or Deutschmarks or, or whatever it was, euro. Uh, and you don't want a bad exchange rate. You never do it at the airport because those exchange rates are horrible. But these guys, they, they ripped them off. They said, oh, yeah, you can give us your Roman currency, and we'll give you temple shekels, but the exchange rate's going to be really, really uh, unfair to you. And so Jesus sees this going on. And he basically drives these people out because they're making what should have been a place of prayer. This is interesting because the, the place in which they did this was the outer courts. And that's the only place that the Gentiles could come. And the outer courts in the temple was designed to be a place of prayer for all the nations. And the Gentiles were encouraged to come and join in prayer. And in this one place that the Gentiles could come was a place that this thievery was happening. And that's where Jesus says, you've taken what should be a place of prayer, and you've made it into a den of thieves. And so Jesus removes them from the temple. Another thing that's interesting is this is, if you notice at the start of Jesus' ministry, he did this, but at that time he got a whip, and he removed everybody, and he knocked over tables, and he, he did basically the same thing. And now at the very end of his ministry, he does the same thing. He removes the hypocrisy and the problem that the religious leaders were bringing into the temple. So Jesus cleanses the temple. He drives out those who were defiling it. And we might think, well, yeah, that, that's, that's interesting and nice. What does that have to do with me? Well, I think something that's very significant for us to understand and remember is that the Bible says that we now, if we accept Jesus Christ, are the temple of 
God. First Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? When you accept Jesus Christ, one of the amazing things that happens is the Holy Spirit of God dwells in you, but the Bible says now you are the temple of God. You see, the temple that's there in Jerusalem, there's no need for that anymore, for God to dwell there. Remember the temple, the, the curtain was ripped in two, because now we have free access to God because of the Spirit of God dwelling in us. But the fact that we are the temple of God is kind of a, a sobering thought. I want you to ponder that for a moment, because whatever you do, Wherever you go, whatever you watch, the Spirit of God is always there with you. He dwells within you. You take Him to the places you go. You're there watching those things. He's there with you. And I think a great thing to ask yourself, all of us should pose this question to ourselves, is what am I, uh, will what I'm choosing to do defile me who is God's temple? Well, when you're, you're pondering, you know, should I do this or not? That's a great question to ask. What I'm about to do is this going to defile me, who is God's temple? Well, what I'm about to watch defile God's temple? Well, what I'm choosing to go defile God's temple? Or maybe think of it this way. If Jesus were to come and spend a week with you, would you watch the same TV programs? Would you go to the same websites? Would you hang out in the same places? Would you do the same things? If Jesus was there with you all day long, 24 hours a day for a whole week, would it change any of the things you watch, any of the places you go, any of the things that you do? And if you're thinking to yourself right now, man, there would be a lot of things that change, a lot of things I wouldn't watch, a lot of places I wouldn't go, a lot of things I wouldn't do. Well, if that's the case, then those are things that need to change now. Because the Holy Spirit of God dwells within you. If you've accepted Christ, He's with you. He's going to these places. You're taking Him with you, and we should take that very seriously. You see, Jesus loves you too much to allow you to continue in that type of sin, to continue in those things, and so He desires to cleanse us. He desires to help us get rid of those things in our life, and He's going to continue to reveal those things to us because He wants us to turn from them and to repent. And when that cleansing happens... When Jesus reveals sin in your life, there's ultimately two different ways you can respond. The first way is the way that he would like us to respond, to see that sin, to repent and turn away from that sin, to ask forgiveness for our sin, to seek to stop doing that sin. And the second way you can respond is just by getting angry that Jesus revealed that sin, that he showed you that, and just you know, not try to deal with it, not try to do anything with it. You see, when Jesus cleanses the temple, the religious leaders are faced with this decision. They can decide to say, you know what, you're right. What we've been doing here in this temple is sinful, it's wrong, it's taking advantage of people who have come to worship God, and now they don't even want to come at all because they know they're getting ripped off. What should have been a blessing has become a curse. We're supposed to be leading them to God, and we're ultimately keeping them from wanting to come to God. We see our sin, we repent of our sin. Jesus, we want to change. But that's not the way that they responded. Instead, they got angry. How dare you call us sinners? How dare you drive us out of this temple? Who do you think you are? So after Jesus cleanses the temple by driving out the corrupt religious leaders, we're told he goes back every day and he starts teaching. He's in the temple, he's teaching, he's sharing the gospel, he's proclaiming things. And the chief priests and the scribes were told that they sought to destroy him. They're, they've had enough of Jesus, they want him dead, but they've got a problem. 
The people love him. The people have been declaring that he's their Messiah. The people are listening to him. So we have to discredit him before we do anything to try and destroy him. And so now this discrediting process is going to start. They're going to pose three interrogation questions to Jesus to try and discredit him. And the questions are designed to be no-win answers. No matter what you say, Jesus, you got a problem, and we're going to show this crowd that you're not who you think or to proclaim you are. So let's see what these interrogation questions are, uh, starting in chapter 20, verse 1 and 2 is the first question. Now it happened on those days, as he taught the people in the temple and preached the gospel, that the chief priests and the scribes, together with the elders, confronted him and spoke to him, saying, Tell us by what authority you are doing these things, or who is he who gave you this authority? So as Jesus is there preaching in the temple, sharing with the people, the scribes, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, they're already super upset. And so they come and they pose this question, by what authority are you doing these things, Jesus? Who gave you this authority? Not only the authority to teach, but probably more significantly the authority to get rid of them and cast them out of the temple, which he did a couple days before this. Now these questions are, are you know, posing something that was very important to those in the temple because they wanted to know, where does your authority come from? Because everyone in the temple was supposed to have authority in order to be there. The chief priests claimed their authority from the law because the law said those who were set aside in the tribe of Levi, uh, they were the ones who had these priestly roles. Uh, and so the law said you are meant to be in the temple doing these significant things. So they say, well, we're from the tribe of Levi. You know, we have authority from the law. Well, the scribes, the students of the law, they claim their authority from the rabbis that they study under. The, the rabbis that we studied under, that gives us the privilege to come and teach here in the temple. The elders of Israel were the leaders of the families and the tribes, and the people chose them to represent them. And so they say, well, we have authority because the people have given us this authority by choosing us to represent them. So all these men were sure of their authority to be in the temple, to teach in the temple, to do business in the temple. And their question to Jesus is, who gave you authority, Jesus? Who made you authority here to teach and to cast us out? And they think that this question is putting Jesus in a dilemma. So no matter how he answered it, he would be in trouble. If Jesus says, I don't have any authority, no one's given me authority, well, the Jews would then say, well, you got a problem then. Why are you teaching in the temple? Why are you casting out religious leaders? If you have no authority to do this, why are you doing this? So they realize if he says, I don't have authority, there's a problem. But if he claims his authority came from God, and that's why he cleansed the temple, that's why he taught the way he taught, he'd have a trouble with the Romans. Because the Romans were always waiting for, because before Jesus there were many people who claimed to be the Messiah, and there were those who you know, followed them, and the Romans would try to crush that as quickly as possible because they did not want unrest there in Israel. And so they think, you know what, if you say no, you've got a problem with the Jews. If you say yes, you've got a problem with the Romans. And so no matter what you say, you're going to have a problem. All right, we got Jesus. Let's see what happens now. Jesus is going to respond to their question. Verse Three, But he answered and said to them, I will also ask you one thing, and answer me. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? And they reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us, for they are persuaded that John was a prophet. 
So they answered, and they, uh, so they answered that they did not know where it was from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Jesus answers their question a way that he answers a lot of people's questions. If you've noticed through Luke, people will come and pose a question to Jesus. And instead of answering the specific question that they ask, Jesus will often respond with a question of his own. And within that question, what he's doing usually is revealing something about the person who's coming with the question. And so that's basically what Jesus is doing with this question that he poses to them. He says, you know what, before I answer your question i got a question of my own. You answer my question, I'll answer yours. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? Basically what Jesus is saying, John the Baptist, was he from God or was he just from man? You tell me that. Did he have authority from God to say what he said and do what he did? Or was he just from man? He wasn't truly a prophet. Now, by replying with this question about John the Baptist, Jesus is not evading the question the religious leaders asked him about his authority. He's actually using this question to explain his authority, but more importantly, to expose the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. If John the Baptist's ministry was from God, then what he claimed, because remember G John the Baptist said, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John the Baptist clearly said, Jesus is the Messiah. So, when Jesus is saying, if John the Baptist truly is a prophet from heaven, then what he said is true. I'm God, therefore I have plenty of authority to cast you out of the temple. If John the Baptist isn't a prophet from God, then what he said isn't true. So you tell me, was John the Baptist's ministry from heaven or not? Now, the religious leaders, they understood what Jesus was revealing in this question. They understand that if they say it's from heaven that Jesus is going to respond and say, well, why didn't you believe John then? Why didn't you believe what John said about me, that I'm the Messiah? If you believe that he's a prophet, why'd you ignore the most important thing that he said, which is, I am the Messiah? So they say, okay, we can't say he's, it's from heaven, because we know the next question Jesus is going to ask is, well, why didn't you believe what he said about me? But if we say it was from men, all the people here are going to stone us, because they're persuaded John truly is a prophet. Now, what they believed is that John wasn't a prophet, and that what he said about Jesus wasn't true, but they weren't about to say that because they were fearful of how the people would respond. And so now they're in the dilemma. They try to put Jesus in a dilemma, and Jesus poses a question to them, and they think, well, if we say he truly was a prophet, we got the issue that Jesus is going to turn around and say, well, then why didn't you believe him? And if we say that he wasn't a prophet, then we got the issue that now the people are going to come against us because they're convinced that he was a prophet. So they decide, you know what, we're just not going to answer the question. Jesus, we don't know the answer. Jesus says, fine. If you're not going to answer my question, then I'm not going to answer your question. Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Well, now Jesus is going to share a parable with these religious leaders to show them some things about themselves. Verse 9. Then he began to tell the people this parable. A certain man planted a vineyard, leased it to vine dressers, and went into a far country for a long time. Now at vintage time he sent a servant to the vine dressers that they might give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the vine dressers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again he sent another servant, and they beat him also, treating him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And again he sent a third, and they wounded him and also cast him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Probably they will respect him when they see him. When the vine dressers saw him, they reasoned among themselves, saying, This is the heir. 
Come, let us kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. So they cast him out of the vineyard and kill him. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard it, they said, certainly not. So Jesus poses this parable. This parable is directed towards these religious leaders. And he says, you know, there's a man who plants a vineyard, and he leases this vineyard to vine dressers. And when it comes time for the harvest, the vine dressers have all this fruit, the owner of the vineyard, he sends servants to go and reap and, and receive the fruits. But the vine dressers, they, they beat the servant and send him away with nothing. And so the master says, you know what, I'll send another servant. And they beat him and send him away with nothing. So he sends another, and the same thing happens. And then he finally thinks, you know what, surely they will respect my only son, and so I will send my son to him to get what is mine. And the servants think, oh, here's the heir. If we kill him, all of this can be ours. And so they kill the son. Jesus says, well, what's the master of this vineyard going to do? He's going to go and he's going to kill all of these vine dressers. He's going to take away the vineyard from them and give it to someone else. It's interesting, in this parable, we see something that's very similar to Isaiah chapter 5, which identifies the vineyard as Israel. Let me hit that, this thing's not working. Isaiah 5, 7 says, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant plants. Jeremiah and some other portions of Scripture uh, speak about Israel uh, as a vineyard. And Jesus is using this uh, to uh, bring this out within his parable as well. So in Jesus' parable, he gives us five different characters. Uh, and here's what each character represents. The man who planted the vineyard is God the Father. The vineyard represents the nation of Israel. The vine dressers represent the religious leaders in Israel. The servants that the master sends, represents the prophets, and finally, the most obvious one, the only beloved son, represents Jesus, the Son of God. You see, it was God the Father who chose the nation of Israel, but it mainly was the religious leaders that often led the nation of Israel astray, led them into idolatry. And so God would send prophets to call them back to him, prophets who would tell them that they're living a sinful life and they need to turn and repent. But for the most part, the prophets were not received well. The religious leaders beat them, stoned them. Isaiah was sawn in two. They did horrible things to them. Well, finally, after God sent prophet after prophet after prophet, he thinks, well, I'll send my only son. And we're going to see that these religious leaders who rejected the prophets also are going to reject and kill the most important one of all, the son, Jesus and they are now going to suffer the consequence, the judgment of God because of that. One day God will judge each person who has rejected Jesus, and these religious leaders are definitely going to be in that group. So Jesus is basically saying to these religious leaders, you know, God chose you as a people, but throughout your history you have rejected God, you have rejected those that he has sent you, and now he has sent you his only son, the Messiah, and you're about to reject him as well, and you're going to suffer the consequences for that. Well, they understand what Jesus is saying. They realize what this parable is all about. They realize it was being spoken to them, and they answer with an emphatic, certainly not. There's no way that we would kill the Son of God. There's no way that we would kill the Messiah. Jesus says, oh, really? 
He responds in verse 17. What then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is interesting because they're saying, no way, we would never kill the Messiah. Well, actually, guys, back in Psalm, Jesus is quoting Psalm 118, verse 22, which is a psalm about the Messiah. And within this psalm, there's an illustration that's being used to show that the Messiah actually would be rejected from the religious leaders. Jesus says, you know, the, the, the psalm is speaking about a building, and within the building, there's a chief cornerstone. And within building structures of Jesus' day, the chief cornerstone was the most significant stone that there was. All the other stones rested on it. So the chief cornerstone wasn't there, the whole building would crumble. So this foundational stone, the chief cornerstone, the most important stone that's there, it says the builders have rejected it. And using this illustration, the chief cornerstone is the Messiah. The builders are the religious leaders, and they have rejected the most important part of this building. And so Jesus is taking them back to Psalm 118, which they would know is a psalm speaking about the Messiah, and he's bringing up this very important part of it, which is saying, hey, it's actually prophesied that you guys would reject the Messiah. So when they say, certainly not, we wouldn't reject, we wouldn't kill, we wouldn't do this to the Messiah, he says, well, actually, it was prophesied back in Psalms that you would. Well, the, Jesus goes on to expound upon that, and he says, whoever falls on that stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls it will grind him to powder. You see, anyone who comes to Jesus, the stone, in that you know, analogy, that illustration, they're going to be broken. They'll be broken of their pride. They'll be broken of their sin. They will come to Jesus and repent and receive forgiveness. But those who refuse to come to Jesus, the stone, will have the stone fall on them, and they will be crushed. Because they're going to stand before Jesus, the judge, and he's going to judge them for their sins. Well, verse 19 tells us, And the chief priests and scribes that very hour sought to lay hands on him, but they feared the people, for they knew he had spoken this parable against them. They hear this. They realize the parable and the illustration in Psalms is directed towards them, that they're the ones who are going to kill the Messiah, and they want to lay hands on Jesus, not lay hands to pray. They want to lay hands to grab him and to kill him. They want to destroy him. But once again, they have their problem. We can't do it yet because the people still love him. The people still see him in this good light, and so we need to discredit Jesus before we can destroy him. So their first interrogation question didn't go as planned. They thought, oh, we got him. Yes or no, he's in a, a catch-22. He's in a bind. However he responds, he's got a problem. But Jesus turns the table on them, and they're the ones ending up looking bad, not Jesus. But they're not done. They figure, all right, we'll have to come up with a better question. So now they have verse 20. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be righteous, that they might seize on his words in order to deliver him to the power and authority of the governor. Then they asked him, saying, Teacher, we know that you say and teach rightly, and you do not show personal favoritism, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Well, the religious leaders, they come up with a new plan. Plan number one, that didn't work, so we're going on to plan B here. And so they, they sent spies to be with Jesus and pretend to be righteous, and they're waiting for the opportunity to jump in there and pose a question to Jesus to get him in a place where they discredit him among the crowd. And so these, these spies come in and they start with flattery, which is just silly, but they, oh, teacher, we know that you say and teach rightly, 
You don't show favoritism. You teach the way of God in truth, which is all a lie, because if they believe that, they'd be listening to Jesus. But they just throw this out there. And here comes the real question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now understand, since 6 AD, the Jews were forced to pay taxes to Caesar. Some of the Jewish patriots called the Zealots, they wouldn't do it. They said, no way, we refuse to pay taxes to Rome, to Caesar, because we are not going to even um, recognize Roman rule over us as legitimate. Those were the ones that the Romans pretty much would kill and wipe out and torture. Most others grudgingly paid it, but everyone hated to pay taxes. It wasn't just the money, it was the principle of having to pay your Roman oppressors money. So they asked Jesus this question, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? They seem to think, we got him in a dilemma. If Jesus says, yes, you should pay taxes, well, you got all the Jews who hate paying taxes, and this will discredit Jesus, this will lose him popularity, so he can't say yes, so that's great. And if he says, no, you don't have to pay taxes to Caesar, oh, he's going to have a huge problem with Rome, because Rome is going to just take care of Jesus. That popular telling people he doesn't have to pay them money, so either way, they think either the Jews are going to do something or the Romans are going to do something. There's no way that Jesus can answer this question without answering it in a way that brings him problems. It's the no-win situation question, that catch-22 question designed specifically that no matter what he says, he's going to have an issue. Now, understand that these are not questions being asked from a true desire for an answer. They're posing these questions in such a way because they just want to try and get Jesus in a place where he has no real answer that he can give that's a good answer. And I bring that up because there's a lot of people today who pose those same types of questions to us as Christians. And they're not posing those questions because they have some real desire for an answer. They just want to pose those questions to try to discredit Christianity, discredit us as Christians, discredit Jesus. So they kind of just throw those out there with specifically designed questions so that we can't answer them and say, ha, see, I got you. A question that's popular among skeptics is, can God make a rock so big that he can't lift it? You see, the question is designed in such a way that no matter if you answer yes or no, it's basically saying that God is not all-powerful. If you say, yes, God can make a rock so big he can't lift it, then God's not all-powerful. He can't lift the rock. If you say, no, God can't make a rock so big he can't lift it, then God's not all-powerful because he can't build a rock that big. Either way, the question's designed with yes or no, you have this dilemma that you face. I had a man in Scotland pose this question to me, thinking, oh, this is really going to get you. And, and I try to explain to him, you know, the way in which you pose that question is purposeful so that no matter how I answer, it's not going to be an answer that, you know, demonstrates anything good. And he just keeps obnoxiously saying, yes or no, yes or no. Can he do it? Can he not do it? So I kind of used a little Jesus uh, response with him. And I said, fine, answer a question for me, and then I'll answer your question. This is a married man, and I said, have you stopped beating your wife? Yes or no? He gave me this puzzled look. He didn't beat his wife. I said, yes or no? Have you stopped beating your wife? And he's pondering that for a second because he realizes if I say, yes, I've stopped beating my wife, it says that he used to beat his wife. And if he says, no, I haven't stopped beating my wife, it says he still beats his wife. But either way, he's beating his wife. So he's kind of looking, and I said, you know, just because I pose a question in a certain way doesn't mean that what I'm talking about is true. Just like you doing this with me, trying to say that God's not all-powerful, and he kind of got the point. But I would just say when you have people who 
design questions in such a way and they're saying these things to you, the reality is they're not trying to seek an answer. They're trying to discredit what you believe. And that's not really worth having a debate with someone like that. You kind of say, well, it's obviously you're not searching. It's obviously you're not sincere. So uh, we'll just leave this one alone. But the religious leaders, they try to put Jesus in this no-win situation, but they don't understand, you know what, you can't put God in a no-win situation. And so Jesus responds to this interrogation question in a great way. Notice what he says in verse 23. But he received, uh, perceived their craftiness and said to them, Why do you test me? Show me a denarius. Whose image and inscription does it have? They answered and said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. But they could not catch him in his words in the presence of the people, and they marveled at his answer and kept silent. Here's a picture here on the slide. It shows a denarius, and as you can see, on the denarius is an inscription uh, or a picture of, Jesus, or of uh, Caesar. So Jesus says, Whose image and inscription is on this coin? Well, the crowd says, Caesar. So Jesus says, give to Caesar the things that are his. It's obviously his. It's his picture. It's his coin. Give to him what is his and give to God the things that are God's. They should give their money to Caesar in taxes because it belongs to Caesar. It is his. He's printed it. It's his money. But more importantly, Jesus brings up, give to God the things that are God's. Give the coin to Caesar because it belongs to Caesar, but give your life to God because it belongs to Him. God wants us to give our entire lives to Him. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 and 20 says this, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, who you have from God, and you're not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. We've been bought. And it costs a lot. Jesus' death is what it costs God to buy us, to redeem us, buy us back for Him. We now belong to Him. He is our Master. Just like the coin belonged to Caesar, give it to Him. Jesus is saying, you belong to God. Give your life to God. Live for Him. Verse 26, But they could not catch Him in His words, in the answer, in the presence of the people, and they marveled at His answer and kept Silence. Well, here's round number two. Still doesn't go so well. The first time they try, oh, they're the ones who look bad. Jesus looks good. This is even worse. They think, oh, we got you now. Pay taxes or not. Jesus turns the tables on them, and they're marveling at the answer that he gives. And once again, instead of discrediting Jesus as they hope to, they're the ones who look foolish, and Jesus is the one who looks all the more wise. Well, now there's another religious group that's going to try to interrogate Jesus, throw a question out there they think is going to get Jesus. It's the Sadducees. Let's see what question that they pose, verse 27. Then some of the Sadducees who deny that there is a resurrection came to Jesus and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies having a wife, and he dies without children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died without children. And the second took her as wife, and he died childless. Then the third took her, and in like manner the seven also. And they left no children and died. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore in their resurrection, whose wife does she become? For all seven 
had her as wife. The two main groups that led religiously there in Jerusalem were the Pharisees, and we know a lot about them because we've seen them a lot so far in Luke. But there was also another group called the Sadducees. And the Sadducees and Pharisees, they differed greatly in their doctrinal beliefs. The Pharisees believed in the whole Old Testament, and they took the whole Old Testament very literally, and they became very legalistic with it. The Sadducees, on the other hand, they only believed in the first five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, everything else they didn't believe. And one of the main things that they didn't buy into were miracles, especially the resurrection. They denied that, they said basically, when you die, that's it. There is no resurrection from the dead. Now, that was something that was debated between them and the Pharisees all the time. And so now they have Jesus, and they pose this question, basically trying to say, obviously, there's no such thing as a resurrection, Jesus. Let us give you this kind of silly analogy to show that there is no such thing as a resurrection. And so they pose this question, wanting to show that, and they say to Jesus, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies having a wife, and he dies without children, his brother should take his wife, and raise up offspring for his brother. Now what these Sadducees are referring to is a law in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 and 6. It says this, if, a brother dwell, if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. Her husband's brother shall go into her, take her as wife, and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And it shall be that the firstborn son which she bears will succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And so they, they put this law together because if you had a brother and he died and his wife didn't have any children, then you would take on that role of having a child with his wife and that the child would be named after the brother so that the brother's lineage and that his name would no longer leave uh, the nation of Israel. And if you didn't want to do that, there was a process in which you could go. Uh, you probably know the book of uh, Ruth, and this is a very significant part. They're actually using this, the kinsman redeemer. He redeems when the brother dies without anything, uh, and we see that in that um, story, which is quite significant. But So they're bringing this reality up, and, and they pose this kind of silly scenario. They say, okay, there's seven brothers. The first one has a wife, and he dies, and they don't have any children. So his brother takes that woman as his wife, and he doesn't have any children with her, and he dies. The third does the same, and the fourth, and the fifth, and the sixth, and the seventh. So all of them have been married to this woman. None of them have any offspring. They all die, and this woman dies. And here comes the question. In the resurrection, which they don't believe in, whose wife does she become? For all seven had her as wife. Well, let's see how Jesus responds to this question that's supposed to catch him off guard as well. Verse 34. Jesus answered and said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given into marriage. But those who are counted worthy to obtain that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. Nor can they die any more, for they are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But even Moses showed in the burning bush passage that the dead are raised when he called the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. For he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for we all live to him. Jesus tells the Sadducees that in this life we marry and are given into marriage. Here in this world, in this life, here on earth, that's something that we do. But those who are blessed with the resurrection of the dead, those who believe in Jesus, those who go on to heaven, he says, you know what, they're not going to be given into marriage in heaven. There's not going to be marriage there. The Sadducees pose this question, 
to try and show that the resurrection from the dead doesn't happen, but Jesus says, you know, you don't know what you're talking about. Their question about marriage has nothing to do with the resurrection because in the resurrection, people aren't given to marriage. It's a whole different thing in heaven than it is here on earth. And Jesus goes to show them from Scripture that there is a resurrection from the dead. And it's interesting because he could have used a lot of Scriptures from the Old Testament that would have been more clear. But he specifically goes back to Exodus. Why? I think because they only believed in the first five books of the Bible. So he's like, fine, I will use a book of the Bible that you actually believe is authoritative. And I will show you that even there, it shows that there's a resurrection from the dead. He says, even Moses, remember when Moses is there with the Lord at the burning bush. He says to the Lord, and he calls him the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, for he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You see, if Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob did not rise from the dead, were not living in heaven with God, Moses would not say, the Lord is their God. Speaking in the present tense, he would have to say, the Lord was their God. Speaking in the past tense, because they're dead and they're gone and they're no longer. But he says, no, he says, the God is not the God was. So Jesus uses that to help them see even in what you believe is inspired scripture shows that truly these are raised from the dead with God. There is truly a resurrection. Well, after this happens, the scribes answer, Teacher, you have spoken well, and we're told no one dares to question him anymore. So three times they're trying to discredit Jesus. Three times they bring these interrogation questions. Three times they try to get him in catch-22 situations where they think, oh, we got you, you can't answer it. And Jesus dumbfounds them. His answers help them to marvel. And he's not the one who's discredited, they are. He's not the one who looks foolish, they are. He now looks more wise than ever. And they're the ones who seem more foolish than ever. And they decide, this isn't working. <laughs> We're not going to ask him any more questions because each time we do, it's just making us look worse and making him look better. So they finished interrogating him, but now Jesus has some questions for them. Notice what he says in verse 41. And he said to them, how can they say that the Christ is the son of David? Now David himself said in the book of Psalms, the Lord is my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore David calls him Lord. How is he then his Son. Jesus poses this question to the religious leaders. He says, you know, how can they say that Christ is the son of David if David himself calls him Lord? How is it that he is the son? One of the most common terms for the Messiah at the time of Jesus, and even something that Jesus referred to himself often as, is the son of David. They knew that in the lineage of David, one of his offspring was going to be the Messiah, and so they would refer to the Messiah as the son of of David. Now, the religious leaders, they thought they knew everything about the Messiah, and so Jesus poses a question to help them to see, you know what, guys? If you haven't learned anything from these last three questions, you've got a lot to learn. There's a lot that you don't understand about the Bible, a lot you don't understand about the Old Testament, a lot you don't understand about the Messiah. And so Jesus quotes Psalm 110, which the Jews knew it was a prophecy specifically concerning the Messiah. And in this Psalm, David clearly calls the Messiah his Lord. So Jesus is saying, how could David call his son, if the son of David is the Messiah, also his Lord. The only way a son could be greater than his father was if that son was more than his father. And the only way to be more than the father is to truly be the Lord, the God. And so Jesus, in posing this question, says, do you understand the truth here, 
about the Messiah, that the Son of God is truly what David was speaking about. And in their arrogance, they tried to outwit Jesus, and they soon found out that he was much wiser than they were, and they still have a lot to learn. So these religious leaders have tried to discredit Jesus among the people, and now Jesus is going to say, all right, for all you people, they try to ultimately discredit me. I want to warn you about them. He finishes with these verses, verse 45 to 47. Then in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogue, and the best places at feasts, who devour widows' houses for a pretense, make long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. Now I want you to picture the scene because he's been having this encounter with these scribes and Pharisees and religious leaders. They're right there with him. They're interrogating him. They're still there. And he turns to the crowd and he says, beware of these guys. Beware of these scribes and Pharisees. Why? And he gives three things to watch out for, to beware of. First, beware of the scribes and Pharisees because they desire to wear long robes. You see, the scribes wore these long religious robes because they thought it made them look more spiritual, this outward display to make people believe that they were more spiritual than they were. But godliness does not come from what we wear. It comes from where our heart is. Jesus says, man looks out the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. And they thought, oh, we're going to put on this great display, this great show. And that was one of the things that Jesus kept saying about them. You're hypocrites. You want people to think you're so spiritual, but truly, you're not. You know, in a lot of traditional churches today, you have men who wear these robes in a similar fashion, some having these hats, and for many, the heart behind it is like the Pharisees. Oh, we wear this because it makes us look so much more spiritual, and we do this because, you know, this is what, you know, portrays this spirituality, and, you know, personally, uh, I don't think it makes them more, more spiritual, I think it just makes them look more silly, but at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter if you're wearing a suit and tie, if you're wearing a robe, if you're wearing shorts and a t-shirt, that doesn't make you spiritual, more spiritual, less spiritual, the truth is, where are you at with the Lord in your heart? That's the real key. And Jesus says, you know what, beware of them. That outwardly they want you to think, oh, by what we wear, we're so spiritual. But that wasn't the case. Second, beware of the scribes because they love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the best places at the feast. The scribes were men who loved to be exalted above others. Oh, we want the best seats, and everywhere we go, we want to be looked upon and given the best stuff. We are the religious leaders. We should have the... the parking place right there in front. We should have the best seat when we come in. We should have everything because look at us and look at our title and we're so wonderful. They love the greetings. They love the best seats. They love the best places. They love to be recognized as so spiritual. Jesus says, beware of these men with religious titles who like to exalt themselves, who want to take the best of everything. They don't even realize what it is to be a servant, really what it is to lead God's people because instead of taking the best seat, they should be taking the least he just says, you know what, you want to be great in my kingdom, become the least. They didn't recognize that at all. They were prideful, they weren't humble. They went into ministry to get what they could take, not to give to the people. Third, beware of the scribes because they devour widows' houses. This is one of the saddest ones of all. They, they went to look to take advantage of those who were the weakest and most vulnerable in that society, which were the widows. They devour, what a horrible word to be used. But sadly, even in that culture, the ones who gave 
Because the scribes and the Pharisees would expect these people to give them, you know, maybe it would just be housing or food or money. And the ones who were the vulnerable ones, and probably who had the least to give, were widows, and they would pray upon them. I get so disgusted with a lot of the Christian things, I don't even want to title it Christian, on TV today, where they literally are begging for money, and the people that they target oftentimes are the widows, are the ones who have so little money, and, oh, give to this ministry, because, you know, if you don't, then it's all going to crumble and fall, and it's like, well, if it's God's ministry, it's not going to crumble and fall, but, you know, uh, sadly, there's so much manipulation and, and trying to just take from people, and we see that today as well. There are people with religious titles who take advantage of the weak and the vulnerable. You know, the church is full of vulnerable people. And when the people that God has called to lead start taking advantage of those people, then there's a huge problem. Godly character is shown in how you help the vulnerable, not how you take advantage of them. Fourth, beware of the scribes, because for a pretense they make long prayers. You know, the scribes were more about just show than substance in everything that they did. Jesus specifically talks about this in Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 and 6. He speaks of their prayer life. He says, When you pray, you shall be not be like the hypocrites, speaking of the religious leaders. For they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut the door, pray to your Father, who is in the secret place, and your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you openly. You know, godly character is shown in what you do when no one sees but God. The religious leaders, they just wanted everyone to see, oh, we'll pray these long prayers so everyone can see how spiritual we are. But it was just about show, not substance. Really, Jesus is saying, you know, if you truly have a heart of prayer, just go alone between you and God. That's the only one who needs to see this. You don't need to stand on the corner of the street and say, oh, Lord, and, and have this prayer voice that you often see and, and get everyone to believe how spiritual you are because... Oftentimes, it's just a show anyway. You know, I think if Jesus were speaking to us today, there would be a lot of churches he would warn us about, a lot of religious people he would warn us about, because sadly, what Jesus warns us with here, we see today. We see in the church world. We see people who are taking advantage, manipulating, destroying those who are most vulnerable, those who just desire everything for themselves, the best of it all. You know, I'm, I'm in this to just get what I can for myself. Those who really don't understand at all what it means to serve God and serve His people. Sadly, there are many wolves in sheep's clothing who come to devour, not come to serve, not come to bless. And we have to be careful. I think we need to examine what pastors, what ministers, what elders, what whoever, what they're saying, what they're doing, to make sure that we're not duped into following something that is harmful. You know, Paul, he encourages us to be like the Bereans. And what did they do? They searched the scriptures daily to make sure that the things that Paul was saying were true. They didn't just say, Paul, you're the great apostle. Whatever you say, we believe it. They said, Paul, we're going to check everything you say with the Bible to make sure that what you're saying is true. And he says, be like those people. And I think sadly too often in the church world it's like, well that person has the pastor title or that person has the reverend title or that person has some kind of spiritual title and so we'll just listen to what he has to say. Surely he's not going to deceive us. Surely he's not going to say something that's wrong. Instead our hearts should be, you know what? Let's search the scriptures to make sure that what's being said coincides with the word of God because every person in ministry is fallible. Myself included. You know, I get encouraged when people come to me and say, you know what, I didn't quite understand that, or can you explain that, or I thought the scripture meant this. Good. 
Don't just take what I have to say and say, well, the pastor says it must be true, but instead always be those who search the scriptures and never be just accepting of anything that you see or anything that you read. And, oh, it's in the Christian bookstore. It must be of God. You know, there's a lot of stuff out there that is just unbiblical. And so we want to come back to the Bible and make sure that everything that's said coincides with the Word of God. So in this chapter, we see the interrogation of Jesus which reveals more of the greatness of Jesus and reveals more of the hypocrisy and the problems within the religious leaders. Their hope was, let's discredit him so that we can destroy him. Unfortunately, they didn't discredit him at all. They discredited him themselves. And I think that should be something that we should be encouraged by in the sense of, you know, the world has lots of questions. And some have, you know, like I already mentioned, that they're not really sincere. They're just trying to destroy what we believe. But we have the truth. We actually have the answers. And we don't have to shy away from that. I would encourage you to study, to show yourself approved, so that you can have answers for people. But, you know, when people come with difficult questions, they'll be like, oh, my goodness, you know, we don't have anything as Christians to answer that. Actually, we do. You might not know the answer, but we have the answers. And you see even here Jesus demonstrated, you know what, the answers are there. And when you, you know, share them, uh, we have the truth. But, um, you know, as I said before, if you've got people who aren't interested and it's probably a good thing not to waste your time with that. But uh, So here's this interrogation, and we're seeing, this is the last week of Jesus' life. Uh, the triumphal entry happened, this interrogation takes place, and they're just like, forget it, we can't discredit him, we're still going to kill him. Uh, and we know the end of the story, but now we're getting closer and closer to the final days of Jesus' life, is uh, everything that's going to happen leading up to the cross. So uh, let's just ask the Lord to bless us. Father, we are so grateful that you are the God of truth. We're so grateful that you have all the truth, Lord. And even as we see here, as the religious leaders tried to discredit you, that there was no discrediting you because of who you are. And Lord, I just am so grateful that your word tells us, Lord, we will know the truth and the truth will set us free. The truth of who you are, the truth of what you've done has set us free free from the bondage that we used to be in in sin and, and the lies of this world, Lord. You and your word are true. And I pray that we would be confident in that truth and that we would desire to study and know that truth, to live by that truth, Lord. And also, God, just to be um, aware that not everyone who calls themselves a minister or a pastor is someone who is speaking truth and who desires to lead people in truth, Lord, and that we would just be those Christians who are like the Bereans, who search the scriptures daily, who always check everything that we read and see, and that aren't gullible believers who just follow whatever uh, is popular, Lord, that we would just always make sure that what is said and what is uh, written is something that coincides with your word. And so uh, we're grateful for who you are. We're grateful as we continue now to look in Luke, Lord, of wonderful sacrifice that you're going to make on our behalf. But uh, we just pray, God, that you would help us, as First Peter tells us, Lord, to be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks us for the hope that we have. Uh, Lord, that we would be diligent to study your word so that when people do come sincerely seeking, that we would have answers, that we could share with them, that we would be able to tell them the truth that they need to hear. Uh, and Lord, so help us to just be diligent to grow, uh, to learn more of you, so that we can be more effective, not only in reaching people who don't know you, but more effective in just living for you, so that we would know the way in which you desire us to live, how we should be parents and spouses 
uh, and how we should be godly men and godly women, Lord, that you would just help us to understand that because your word reveals those things to us and that we need to learn it and apply it to our lives. And so help us to do that, Father. And so uh, we just thank you for the season that is coming up. We thank you for the opportunity to celebrate the incarnation, you becoming one of us. Uh, and I just pray, Lord, that you would help us as we'll be with family and friends and maybe even have parties with coworkers leading up to this, Lord, that we would take the time to help people understand why we celebrate Christmas, uh, that it's not just about presents and Santa and trees, it's something so much deeper and more significant that you, the God of heaven and earth, sent your only son to become one of us with the purpose of living a sinful life and dying on the cross. And just help us to have that as our mindset this Christmas season uh, and to just share that with people. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, speaking of Christmas, next week will be our Christmas service. We're not going to have a Christmas Day service. Uh, and so uh, we're going to do what we've done with uh, Thanksgiving and the baptism. We're going to have our meal here and uh, have some time to hang out together here. So if you want to help uh, cook anything.